Welcome to another episode of the Successful Business and Practice of Law, presented by LawQuirk. I'm your host, Greg Garman. Today, we're talking with Carolyn Elephant. And the way this show usually works is that we record the episode, and then I go back and write an introduction to highlight our guest. I'm really struggling with that this week because Carolyn has been successful in so many aspects of the business of law, the practice of law, and community of law that I've struggled to even figure out where to begin. But Carolyn, she's an incredibly successful energy lawyer based in the D.C. area. She has been and is perhaps the strongest voice empowering solos and small firms uh, in the community that goes along with that and has been for decades. She has a blog, My Shingle, that has thousands, and I mean literally thousands of posts and resources that uh, every lawyer ought to read. It's been linked to hundreds of thousands of times. She has an outsized voice in legal tech, Uh, And along the way, she stumbled into being an empowering figure for female lawyers in this country. This is a great show. Carolyn has a lot to say. She's accomplished a lot. So without any further ado, let's welcome Carolyn to the show. Well, Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thanks. It is great to be here, Greg. So, Carolyn, you occupy this really interesting place in law and that and that you transcend a bunch of different communities. You're one of the first, if not the first voice uh, on empowering solos and small firms. You've been blogging for, I think it's 18 or 19 years now. You have this disproportionately sized voice in legal tech. And I have to go no further than my co-founders or my law partners to know how important you've been in empowering women lawyers. And uh, my question at the end of the day is, how did you get here? But how is it that you occupy so many spaces in so many communities? That's a good question. I think that all of us um, have very varied backgrounds. And I feel that in the different communities I'm in, each of them play to an interest that I have. To be honest, I mean, obviously, I am a woman. I never really thought that much about the women empowerment until as time passed, I saw how far behind our profession had been. And I also have two daughters who are, they're both STEM majors, they're both in math. And I see how they're treated by some of their male colleagues. And a lot of the treatment that I had had that I ignored for myself has become very stark with uh, my daughters. And so that's an issue that has always been around, but one that I've become more sensitive to. I guess the legal tech interest came from partly from my husband, who was in technology. And he, it was always something that interested me when I was in law school. I bought a Mac like back in 1987. So I always liked it because it helped me to, to write and it got, you know, you could do the desktop editing. And so I was able to get the word out with my ideas. But my husband really kept me up to date on a lot of the technology that was going on. So each of the different interests sort of comes from, I guess, a different part of my background and my skills and my own personal situation. So, Carolyn, I don't I don't want to be presumptuous, but I, I would venture to say that solos and small firms, the the work and the the leadership that you've provided, and that is probably best what you're known for. How did you find yourself in the 90s deciding that that was a topic you wanted to talk about? So I guess that was around the time that there was a lot of interest in dot-coms and sort of these large websites for pet food or for diapers or for things like that, that at the time were still ahead of their time, but over time have become more relevant. So I was trying to think of some type of site that I could start. And I thought that there could be one for solo and small firm lawyers. I was a big, was a heavy reader of the law.com, American Law Media, which always covered big law firms. And there really wasn't similar coverage about solos and smalls, except for occasional articles in the ABA journal. And so I felt that there was a need to really focus on those issues and to sort of celebrate what solos and smalls are doing and help inform other lawyers, help other lawyers learn about what solo and small firms were doing, because I thought that it could also be a viable career path for many lawyers who'd never considered it. And I've heard you tell this story, at least part of this story, but what was the jumping off point for you for going from larger firms? And I think you had some government experience to to putting your own shingle up. 
So for me, I was at the government and then I was at a sort of national boutique firm and there, it was at a time when there was sort of an economic downturn. I was told that I wasn't on the partnership track and I'd always thought about starting my own firm. And I thought, well, what the heck? (laughs) No time like this to try it. I'd also wanted to sort of get some new skills that I hadn't been able to develop when I was working at my firm. And so I always say that I started off solo because I, I wasn't sure what the options were. And I was just really saw it as a placeholder. I didn't see it as starting a business. And then I got pregnant a few years later. And then I say that I stayed solo because I had my daughters. And then I started to realize the kind of business opportunities and the economic opportunities that being on my own could provide. When you started your own firm at that time, how do you think it compares to trying to start your own firm today? Was it was it easier in those days or was it harder? Gosh, I mean, it was... <laughs> There's some things that I look back on that were much harder. I don't want to sound like, you know, the always trek to school in three three miles in 10 feet of snow kind of thing. <laughs> but I mean, I remember just, you know, figuring out how to take phone calls and not have it come through my personal line and have somebody figure out I was working from home. So I had this, I'd had this virtual office space that had you know, one receptionist for like 500 attorneys, and she would pick up the phone and answer for whichever office number had dinged. And then she would either forward the phone to me at home. But if I wasn't there, she would just hang up the phone on the callers. (laughs) So (laughs) people couldn't figure out. I mean, I guess the thing was people couldn't figure out I was working from home, but I wasn't getting the calls anyway. So just and, and I was always reluctant to call somebody from my home number because I would think, oh, they're going to know I'm working from home and it's going to be this really embarrassing situation. So I think some of the things that have changed is obviously it's much easier to get a phone line or not even use a phone, but just call over your computer. And the second thing that has changed, especially post-pandemic, is that working from home and from different locations has been normalized. And nobody would think twice about getting a call from from an attorney, even it is from their apparently from their home number. So some of those attitudes have definitely changed. I joke one of the biggest uh, changes I've seen is that it wasn't too long ago that if there was a dog barking in the background of a conference call, uh, everybody sort of lost their mind. And now it's like, oh, like, well, you got a dog, too. And we all have that moment. Right. Yeah. 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 So that's that's definitely different. And the other thing that has really changed significantly is is the cost. I remember at that time, I I had to use Lexus because of my practice area and I just I couldn't afford it. So I used to. Wait, the the cost that was quoted to me, it was $600 a month for like 12 searches. And, and this was, you know, 25 years ago when $600 is, you know, worth like, you know, $1,200 today. So that was a huge, you know, that kind of thing was a huge obstacle. So, I mean, what I used to do is I used to go to the libraries and, you know, use the, the free the free machines, but even things, you know, office space, which was de rigueur, it's more expensive. There were just everything I can think of was just so much so much more more costly. So you didn't have access to these virtual pools of of contract attorneys like law clerk legal. I think when I used to want to hire somebody part-time, I would have to call some, I would call an agency and sometimes I'd get lucky and they would find a law student for me or something. But yeah, it's it's really it's like the dark ages. <laughs> so so the infrastructure's obviously gotten easier. But what about the clients? Are they more accepting of, of solos and smalls now as opposed to then or feel kind of the same? So my practice has always been a little bit different. I started out in the energy industry and I still practice there. But And, and I thought at first that I could be the affordable option to the big firms and big companies would hire me. And I realized big companies didn't care. They didn't mind paying for big firms. So I had to branch out and identify smaller clients who didn't have the same resources as large ones. And they were very willing to work with a solo or a small firm, just if only because they didn't have any options. I think many people, many consumers who have consumer needs are also equally willing to work with a small firm or firm of size of one to three rather than a larger firm. I think where things really have changed to some extent is that I think we see more businesses being more willing, larger companies being more willing to work with small firms. Though I can say even in the energy industry, 
you know, there were always firms or this special kind of this unique kind of practice area in D.C. for regulatory attorneys with a high degree of expertise who would be sort of a solo shop and they'd be almost like an outside counsel for the firm in Washington, D.C., where they needed to have somebody. And I would see that frequently in other capital cities where they needed to have somebody, you know, who had connections to the regulators and to the politicians to, to be able to get things done. So so I, I think there is part, a segment which is now more willing to work with small, solo and small firms. But I think for lawyers who always had expertise, companies were willing, certain companies were willing to, to go with them from the get-go. I talk about my experience fairly often, but, you know, I made the jump from being a managing partner of a bigger firm to opening our own boutique. And, you know, we've got a, a, a decent number of lawyers, but the most interesting thing my clients ever told me was, I'm so glad I'm no longer paying for all that cost structure you had. They were very, very open and vocal about the fact that, you know, they didn't think that the you know, the 40 foot conference table really provided them value at the end of the day. And, you know, my rates actually meaningfully gone up since I left a bigger firm, but the, the clients really seemed to get frustrated in some ways about the cost structure of legal. And that was probably the most surprising thing that I experienced making that change, I don't know, six, seven years ago, however long it was. Yeah, I have noticed actually more recently, I'd say in the past two to three years, I have gotten called in on cases to displace like a major size DC firm that had really run up the bill. And um, I had actually one case where I largely replaced the firm. They couldn't completely get rid of the firm. And so the firm criticized the work that I had done. And I showed the criticism to the client and what I documented. And so the, the client said to the firm, you know, we're going to cut you off unless you sign this non-disparagement clause, you can't disparage Carolyn's work. No kidding. <laughs> so that was really cool. That's that's a cool story. Yeah. Clients, definitely, clients definitely seem to have gotten smarter over yeah. the last 10 years. Boy, I think it was before that. I think it was probably pre-Great Recession. They sure seem to get a lot smarter about paying for what they deem to be value and not wanting to pay for what they deem to be training and other things. So, so let's talk about your firm a little bit. So you've mentioned you're in the energy sector. You've been doing that a long time. You know, for those who've followed your, your practice, uh, I know you do kind of property components to it and pipelines and, and some other stuff, but what's the business model behind your firm? Is that, is that a, an hourly based practice? Is that a flat fee based practice? How do you work? So I work a lot of different ways. I do a lot of very specialized appellate work at the federal appeals courts appealing the rulings of a particular agency. And there I tend to work on flat fees. I've done so many appeals. I mean, by now I've probably been involved in like 50 or 60, which, you know, at like the DC circuit or the third or fourth circuit, it's they're a larger endeavor. And so those are usually flat fee because I know exactly what's going to happen in every case. And I know what all of the possibilities are because every time I have a case and some court comes up, I can identify that. So those I like to do flat fee because the work is very certain. The deadlines are set. You, you just, you know, what's going to happen. You know, it's going to cost easiest way to do it. In some of the other cases with the eminent domain cases, it's often, it's a hybrid model. Sometimes it is hourly. Sometimes there's like a flat fee and then some percentage contingency. Sometimes it's completely contingency depending on the particular client. And then, you know, one of the things that I had hoped to implement, but clients really weren't that um, interested in it was um, many times when I start these, this is for the pipeline work. When I start the case, there goes through a very long 24 month regulatory process and there are things every month that happen. And I tried to propose sort of a flat fee each month to like a flat retainer where I would do a certain um, number of deliverables to keep them informed on things. And most people weren't that interested in doing that. So I sort of just provided like, you know, would sort of coach them along the way so they could manage it themselves. So it's not to botch the case. And then by the time it would come to me. So it's, it's all of those different approaches. I would love, I mean, I think it's, it's all in the business model, right? I mean, I'm intrigued by business models and, and how they work and how people make them work, you know, like with flat fees and divorce cases or things like that. And I kind of wish I've tried to be more innovative, but some of the work is just so bespoke that I have not yet come up with a solution for, for doing it completely differently. 
So, you know, I'm in the same boat. We end up disproportionately talking about business models on this show in particular, <laughs> because I think that the, the lack of innovation is one of the big things that's holding the profession back. You know, you talked there about kind of flat monthly fees. I'm seeing that that's starting to have some success, even in litigation cases where, mm. where business clients are, are coming around to the proposition that, you know, a flat fee of X thousand dollars a month until trial makes sense from a planning perspective. That's, that's what I'm kind of keeping my eyes on because it seems like it's gaining steam, at least anecdotally. But let me ask you, when you moved away from just the billable hour to flat fees, did you do it because it was an advantage with the clients, maybe from a marketing perspective or maybe landing the case? Or did you do it because it made more sense from a business model, a profit loss statement for, for your firm? So I, I always felt like one of my peeves that I'd seen at the firm, even where I'd worked before, was you know who is responsible when there is a cost overrun. And I always felt strongly, even when I started my firm, that I as the attorney should bear the risk. So I always gave these never to exceed estimates and things like that, because I felt like if there was an issue that wasn't anticipated, I was in the better position to identify that unless, of course, you know, it was like a client completely going off the off the rails. And so I realized, though, that, you know, with a never to exceed cap, you get the burden, but not the benefit. You don't, you right. still don't get rewarded for, for being efficient. And I, I came to realize that, you know, I mean, this, this was many years ago. So by doing the flat fee, it gave me an opportunity to kind of balance those things out. But the other thing is, is I just, I hated timesheets. And now of course, keeping, uh, it, this is maybe one of the benefits of starting in the dark ages, because back then you would really like, I don't even know if it was a spreadsheet is just like notepads. And then like one weekend a month, it would take me an entire weekend to, to do invoicing where now it takes me 20 minutes. I mean, so, you know, I, I, and I just hated, I hated doing that and a flat fee. I could just, you know, send it to clients up front and, you know, and just have them. I, I, I don't think I ever collected the entire fee up front, but I would take a retainer and just have them pay at the end. So, so I, I think it was, it was all of those things kind of motivated the decision. And, you know, to me, I've seen a benefit in the cases we take flat fee because, you know, we're honorable, good lawyers and like, we're not trying to run up the bill and we've got, you know, as much work as we could ever do. And and, and so, you know, I, I often poo-poo those comments about the billable hour, you know, puts, puts the interest of the lawyer adverse to the client. But at the same time, we're more efficient in our flat fee cases. I see us get work done more efficiently. And I don't really understand why, because I don't think we drag our feet on the billable uh, hour work that we do. But I think that it's good for the client. And I will say it's good for us as a business because it's the time that encourage us, encourages us to build kind of internal systems and to build, you know, ways to, to be repetitive and efficient. And, you know, even if it's long-term efficiency, it's pushing us in the right direction. And it does mean at the end of the day that I think we find ourselves probably making slightly more than we did on an hourly basis, but yet driving down the ultimate bill to the client. And, you know, those are two things that this business often needs. So I, yeah, I, I don't know if there's even a question there, but that's my experience of kind of moving to flat fee, but, but, but what's, what's yours been like? So, yeah, it's been positive. One of the things I was going to say is the other thing with the flat fee, a lot of my clients are consumer groups who literally like hold garage sales or one time they had, um, uh, they had some sort of a, a dinner where Kid Rock, he sponsored one of the tables for my fee. So I can say like Kid Rock paid my, <laughs> help pay my bills. But one of the things that clients need when they're going to raise money is they need to know how much the case is going to cost. And so if I can quote a flat fee and say it's going to be, you know, $20,000 or 40 or five, they can just go out and start moving towards that goal. So it's been favorable for that. Um, it also forces me to think about the case up front because when I do a flat fee, I do, I want to include all the deliverables because I don't want there to be any inclusion about if there's some matter that I'm not doing. And many times in my cases, especially with these citizens groups, surprisingly, we're actually able to share 
some of the workload. Like, for example, I would exclude from my scope monitoring the docket every day and I'd have them instead monitor it and bring something to my attention. And so I exclude that from the scope. So it it forces me to think about the scope and what the whole case is going to look like. So that also lets the clients know where things are going. I mean, I just feel like I have a lot more control over it. If I were just going into a case with an open check, that would be stressful for me. And then sending out bills that I know are stressing the client out. I I don't know. That's not, that's, that's not my, not my jam. (laughs) Yeah, it it is win-win, but you know, I, I I do tell lawyers all the time, if, if you're going to take the risk on a flat fee, you got to make sure there's some upside for you because there are going to be cases you lose on and you've got to offset those with sometimes having, getting the win from efficiency. Right. Right. So you run a national practice, right? Yes. How does that work for your business? Is it that there's sort of price sensitivity in different geographic locations or there are different expectations? Or is it that, you know, if they're coming to D.C. to find an expert and you're sort of priced in that smaller geographic uh, model? Yeah, so it's more the second situation. It's what's unfortunate with the way that, at least with these pipelines, the way that most of the ones that my clients are involved in are regulated it's top down from DC as opposed to sort of like a, a generator that might be getting built where you have local clients or I, I work with some solar clients in Maryland and that's a more local type of, of siting situation. So they do expect there to be higher fees. And I do try to work with, you know, there, there's some landowner groups who are in environmental justice communities. And I try to come up with billing scenarios that are different for them than for say, you know, I've also had some very wealthy landowners who have been in a situation where there's been a pipeline on their property, or I've had a case where a personal, it was an environmental plaintiff's firm that had a huge contamination case on a pipeline property that the company was going to try to condemn an eminent domain so that they were, they had so much at stake, they were able to pay pretty well. So mm-hmm. it, it sort of, it, it, it varies like that. And I'm, I'm sensitive to that. And, you know, I mean, at the same time, I'm not a charity. And so if there are groups that aren't able, especially at this juncture, if there are groups that can't pay my fees, I can pay them, I can send them off or, you know, just give them, I I have a lot of forms and information sheets that I can provide them. I have this theory. Tell me whether this holds any water or not. I have this theory that DC is a bit of a barometer of the future of of law huh. in that. So, so I, I've run a DC office when I was, again, at my bigger oh, firm. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. It was more of a lobbying office than, mm-hmm. than most other things, but I have this theory that DC, it has a lot of really big prestigious firms and it has a lot of really, really well-known small firms and solo practitioners. But my experience, and it might just be anecdotal, is that there's not a lot in the middle. There's not a lot of sort of mid-sized firms that have found real success in DC. And I've, I've long had this theory that sort of the regional firms are the ones that were going to struggle kind of nationwide because they kind of find themselves in that no man's land of not being, you know, not being a big firm, not being an AMLAW firm, but not really having the boutique reputation in practice specific areas. And, and I've always thought that DC was sort of years ahead and that those middle tier firms had kind of died out and moved either to bigger platforms or smaller. Does my anecdotal experience have any resemblance to what, what you actually see living and practicing there? See, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I mean, what I've noticed in the energy space is a lot of the mid-sized energy firms were kind of scooped up by other types of regional firms. There was a firm in the uh, very well known in New Jersey that wanted to have a presence in the energy space. And so they bought out a, it was probably like a 15 person law firm. I know that the firm that I used to work for, which at its peak was about 30 people, a 30 person boutique and had sort of gone up and down is now seems more like just a cluster of a couple of independent attorneys in a coalition or some sort of collaboration. The other thing with DC is, you know, in DC, we have had that non-lawyer ownership rule for forever. And it was really set up to benefit lobbyists because a lobbyist would work at a law firm and they wanted a piece of the piece of the action. So the rule was changed to allow them to share in profits. But I feel like 
in what in the DC area, we don't see the kind of innovation that you see in you know in Utah with the regulatory sandbox or Arizona, which and I know in Arizona the I, they just completely got rid of they completely gutted yeah. rule five point five point four, so it was maybe more extreme. But I guess that's what I find a little disappointing about DC is that or, or that seems maybe more traditional. But I think in terms of the firm size, what you're observing is is accurate. I, I guess the one, the other thing I do see though, and again, it's, I think it's unique to energy is I see the rise of some specialized regional firms. There's, um, like a firm out of Virginia, which over the years, the a guy started his own firm, I guess, like 10 years ago. And now they've grown to like 15 people in Richmond and they sort of serve energy needs in that area. Um, sort of, you know, Virginia maybe North Carolina. So a lot of it is also tied to the different developments going on in state. So I wouldn't give up on mid-sized specialized firms just yet if they're if they're specialized like cannabis or yeah. you know these energy now is all focused all about climate change, solar, wind and that's very local type of generation. See, I kind of see those as a little different though and that yeah. I actually feel like that's a new business model which is a larger firm that found a niche. Uh, you know, I right. think the I think the employment firms kind of led the led the way in in being subject matter specific, and I think that's I think that's super interesting from an efficiency perspective. And so I'm I'm kind of relieved to hear that it's working its way into other industries mm-hmm. like that. So law firm 3.0 it's a it's a term I've heard you use in the past. You know, I generally kind of understood it to be kind of mixing what you do, the business model, technology, but but but. What is it that you're doing that you think sets you apart from kind of the stone ages that I think most small firms are, are, are still basing, basing their model on? So I think just part of it has been the, the flat fee. I've always been, because I've worked with clients across the country, there's always been a remote component to it. I, I've never had more than like one or two full-time associates. Um, I prefer to work with contract attorneys or of counsel attorneys. There are a lot of, I, I was beneficiary of the 2008 downturn. A lot of people uh, who were laid off, I was able to get them to work for me. So I think that those are some of the things that are different, but I should tell you, so this is, this is, I give you the breaking news here. So actually like at the end of this month, I'm, I'm going to take a sabbatical for a couple of months because no I really want to rethink what I want the next 10 years of my practice to, to look like. And I am in a position where I can I can do that. I can step away. I know if I want to step back, I can, there's a lot of different things I can step back into. And there's some things that just kind of will work for themselves. But that's, that's a really good question because I feel like there is so much opportunity and so much is changing. I mean, especially the opportunities for partnering with non-attorneys, because I feel like some of the cases I've worked on most successfully have been in collaboration with engineers or land consultants, environmental people, and you know, I'm very curious about how that how that works. So, so I think there are things that set me apart, but I think there are there are so many more things that can be done, and I just need to step back to think about what what that is and how it looks. So, Karen, how do you do that? Because I'm not even sure sometimes how to turn my out of office auto reply on uh, in trying to manage clients. Like, like how, how do you prepare them for that moment? So I'm still, like I said, I still have, you know, I'm putting things in motion, but I've spoken to one of the attorneys who has worked with me before on some of my cases and he, he is retired, but he is looking to take mm-hmm. on extra work. So he, and he knows he's actually worked with some of my clients in the past. And then for some of the other cases, they're just sort of in a more management mode. I mean, I have sort of limited what I've been taking on for the past month or two or past couple of months. Also, I've been much more selective about what I'm taking. So I won't have that many clients to work with. And the ones who I have, I have either, you know, other attorneys who can, who can cover this, but I, and I will tell the other clients I have that, you know, I, I've always been very straightforward with clients and colleagues and people I've worked with about my situations and, you know, what I'm doing next. And so, you know, this is something that I will tell 
people, you know, and say that I'm looking at different, you know, different directions and where my firm is headed. I mean, the the thing with my field is there's there's so much opportunity now because of the new administration, more focus on climate change, environmental justice communities. And I just feel like, you know, what I've done is just kind of scratch the surface with that. Mm-hmm. I also really enjoy doing appeals and would like to do more of those. So yeah, so we'll we'll see how this how this works. I'm hoping by telling people that I'm on the sabbatical, it will help to limit the, the number of calls or you know number of cases and things things like that. But we'll see. But I I really feel like unless I have a full stop and I can just take it all down, I you know because a- after you do the same thing for a while, you sort of get you can get stuck and it becomes very easy to go on autopilot. So it's not such a good thing. Yeah, I understand that. I, I'm I'm excited to see what you come up with for Law Firm 4.0. Yeah. So let's turn to my shingle, your blog site. It is perhaps one of I think the least appreciated tools and assets that's out there. Now I know you get a ton of traffic. I looked it up. There's more than a quarter million external links to the articles that you've published oh. over over the last 18 years. It, that's not to say that it's this completely hidden gem, but it's unlike any other legal blog site I've ever visited because it, it's not a marketing tool for you. It, it, it's not an energy component. It's not even linked directly to to your law firm. It, it really is this honest place where disproportionately it's you, you know, talking about everything from you know law firm operations to my favorite category, which is I think you call it inspirational and kind of everything that happens in your life. And and it's incredibly it's incredibly honest and bravely open. You know, you've, you've talked about the struggles of, uh, of your husband with his, with his illness before he passed and kind of how that was both hit you personally and professionally. And, and I'll just say like, I, as a consumer of it, I, I couldn't be more appreciative of, of the work that you put into it because it really is wonderful, but it was first, right? It was <laughs> wow. the first one out there. No, there are, there are other blogs that Bob Ambrosi beat me by a couple of weeks at least. And there, you know, there are some other blogs. It was, it was the first one on solo and small firm. Right. I will say that. Right. Yeah. Right. So how'd you get started? So, like I said, I, wanted there to be some sort of a site for solo and small firm lawyers. And originally it was conceived as a website. I mean, I had a whole business plan. I I still have a business plan. It was like a 20 page business plan of all the stuff. It was going to be supported by ad revenues. And we're going to do announcements for solo and small firms and sell products and all of these things, which I guess, you know, wasn't necessarily ready for prime time. But the thing was at that time, it wasn't easy to just throw up a website. I think I tried hiring somebody from a contract site in Bosnia and he put something together that looked so awful. (laughs) (laughs) So then my husband, um, he was a reader of a website called Slash Dot and it had a platform that it's very much it does it has a lot of features that a lot of the blogging sites have now. So he kind of helped me get that set up and then it was more like a blog and you know, like I said, the people who were blogging at the time, blogging was was really something that was free and wasn't commercial. So I kind of gave up on the monetization and just started doing the, the, the writing part of it. But yeah, there were resources there. And then I guess a year or two after that, law.com started this blog affiliate program. And so they affiliated with me and that got it some more exposure. But starting out, you know, a lot of solo and small firms... I feel like now solo and small firms are much more innovative and nimble. But back then, I feel like there were very many, many of them were very stodgy. So I, I had really like eight readers a day for the first year or two. It was it was very low readership. Well, <laughs> and nobody was- would write in and comment or... Well, lawyers still don't do that, I don't think. Yeah. But <laughs> that's how these things start. You know, good content wins. I mean, there must be what? A couple of thousand posts you've put up over the years? Yeah. So there've been like a couple of thousand. And that's one of the other things I really want to do on my sabbatical too, is I want to focus on, well, first of all, cleaning up just some of the, there's like a lot of gunk in the, in the pipe, so to speak, just dead links and, and things like that. And I want to get that cleaned up. But I also feel like there's a real opportunity now with the world changing and just you know, the kinds of things that the kinds of culture we have now to really be much more proactive and aggressive about promoting this idea of, of ownership as something that's transformational in the legal profession, where you can transform your life, women and lawyers of color can really 
change the amount of power that they have by recognizing the ownership that they have. And so I am hoping to, you know, to have to offer some more, a few more courses through the website and also support for people like right at their start, because that's what I love. That's the part I love the most is the the start. Like I, I'm, yeah, there's a lot of people who, you know, a lot of websites devoted to building and growing, but I just love, you know, the, the part where you're starting out and where you actually implement your, your first vision. So, yeah. So, so for those of you who haven't visited the site, you really should, particularly if you're interested in starting a firm, because the, the resources Carolyn, that you have, the, the videos you put up, the, the courses that you, that you sort of offer that are clearly, you know, thought out from topic to topic, um, and starting a firm are, are quite wonderful. I, I actually didn't know about it. Um, when, we set out to start mm-hmm. our firm, however many years ago that was, and I, and I wish we'd had it uh, at that point in time. So uh, let's talk about the content, though, because I don't know if it's intentional or not, but as I look at the arc of the topics you cover, <laughs> it sort of feels like there are you know moments in time that are tied to the larger cultural movements of, of what's happening, not just within the law, but, but even beyond that, that make their way through in, in, in what you're writing about is, is that intentional or is that just that you're kind of writing from the heart and writing about the stuff that matters to you the most at whatever point in time that is? I write about things that are important, but I also think that law is not isolated and the trends we see in other parts of society and other industries also inform what happens in legal. So, you know, for example, like when lawyers were objecting to being rated online, it was, mm-hmm. I mean, people were rating hotels and books and, you know, it, it was, it was just out of sync. And I think now, you know, one of the trends that we're seeing is sort of the rise of what's called the creator economy or the ownership economy. I guess you just put ownership or create, you know, ownership economy on the end of anything, you turn it into a a trend. And I really think that that's, it's, it's such an important concept because lawyers have never really thought about that. I mean, lawyers don't own the law, but they own what they do with the law. They own their creativity and the ways that they serve clients and their talent. And I don't think there's enough attorneys who realize that. And then also there's been trends towards, you know, a more inclusion and diversity in our society. And that's something that legal is still maybe a little, a little stuck on now. So I, I do look to those other trends because it's only a matter of time you know, as to when they come into legal. And I'm not suggesting that law is going to, you know, go the way of newspapers or travel agencies and be completely decimated with just like a few lawyers and everybody using a robot. I mean, it's still a different kind of industry and different expectations and things, but it doesn't mean that it isn't going to be at least changed at the, at the margins. Well, the more we evolve, the more successful we're going to be. Yes. Because I, I, do, I do believe that it's the industries that refuse to evolve that uh, end up getting um, just rolled over by technology that oftentimes isn't, isn't necessarily for the better for the consumer. But That's true, they, yeah. I don't want to read too much into sort of the, the turns that you know, you've kind of taken and what you cover on the, on the site, but it seems to me that you've been perhaps growing increasingly disappointed with the uh, ABA and kind of the things you've been writing about is, is that sort of intentional? Is that something that's kind of grown with you? Uh, have I, have I totally read the situation wrong or, or cause, cause I think the ABA has been slow to, to help in some of these evolutions myself. Uh, and, and so I've, I've really thought that some of your words and some of your um, posts were right on point. Yeah, I mean, I think the ABA could really have given a lot more leadership on some of the ethics questions, even if to just give the green light to solo and small firms. I personally don't think that you need to have the green light on all these new iterations that come up. I think a lot is common sense. I mean, you know, if you're going to pretend to be somebody else and fake friend somebody on Facebook, whether it's Facebook or not, so they should tell you there's just something inherently shady about that. Like, but there are lawyers who do want, you know, clear lines. And I think, you know, the ABA could have been much more forward looking on, you know, discussing things like not necessarily law firm ownership, but just, you know, on, on using the web on, you know, using social media, they were very late to come out with something on, on that. And I guess also in just, you know, 
recognizing other technology trends. And, you know, it seems like with the ABA, it's sort of like one or the other. I mean, they've been much more open to working with LegalZoom and Rocket Lawyer and sort of automated groups, but not necessarily showing lawyers what they can do to sort of marry those two things together. Yeah. So I think that I don't think solo and smalls are necessarily their main constituency. And I'm not, you know, I mean, the profession has become very diverse. It's it's hard yeah. to even know, like, if it's possible to have that kind of organization anymore. Yeah, I mean, they've certainly been at the forefront of some things. But, yeah. but you know, I, I think there's a mess about the ethics of remote lawyering and virtual offices. And, you know, I, I think those yeah. are rel- those would be relatively easy topics for some leadership on. Yeah, no, just, I know, just small things. I They had some ethics 2020 thing. I can't even believe it was like 10 years ago. And one question that perpetually came up was, you know, you know, I'm licensed in New York. My family's in Pennsylvania. Can I sit here in Pennsylvania and practice New York, you know, represent clients in New York? And they, I don't even think they answered the question. The answer should be, yeah, of course. Why not? Don't hold yourself out in Pennsylvania. Represent the people in New York. Do it all remotely and, you know, have a nice day. So Right, right. So that leads into how are you working these days? We were talking before we hit the record button. And, you know, I told you that you know I have two physical offices. I've got one at the firm. I've got one at Law Clerk. But here I am in my basement uh, most <laughs> days trying to get everything done and probably being a lot more productive at it. Yeah. So I was, before the pandemic, I had been in, I had a dedicated office in a WeWork space in DC. I love WeWork. I mean, I, not necessarily the company I've seen the, I've read the book and that's not cool, but, but the level of service I had and the way I was treated in the space, I thought they were, they were amazing. So after the pandemic, I wasn't able to get back into my office. And after it just sort of sat there for a year, I gave that office up and they don't have anything close to where I live. So I just have sort of a virtual spot there. And I have been working from home. My daughters are both out of the house and I just have a whole space. So I'm going to, now that I know that I'm probably going to be home, at least for the foreseeable future, for probably I'd say the next year, I'm going to fix up my home office a little more to my my liking. So it's still kind of jerry-rigged. What do you think our brethren are going to do? Where do you fall in this question of... Uh of whether or not offices are going to reopen the way they used to. I can't imagine that things are going to go back to the way that they used to be. I mean, I think hybrid is probably the most likely way to go. I think that some firm, I I mean, there are already firms that do operate completely virtually. And then I know that there are other firms that were very, you know, they they liked having sort of that in-person culture, but I think we're going to, I think the firms that are going to be the most successful and have the best chance of attracting talent uh, will be the ones that are flexible in, in some way. And if that's having people come in two days a week or to work a partial day or something like that, I think that's really where things, where things have to be headed because after being out for so long, I, I don't think, I mean, people are ready to go back, but I think after like two weeks of being back in the office and doing the compute commute, they're kind of wishing they could return to at least some days at home. You know, the spot we find ourselves in is uncertainty you know, we've got these space like everybody else that, you know, we sort of yeah. got to try and manage. But for the very first time, we are so so we've always had remote on at both companies. We've always had remote lawyers uh, in different jurisdictions. In Law Creek, we have you know a remote team. But for the very first time in the last month, we've now started to host jobs and look for employees intentionally in other cities to sort of get a different, oh. more diverse pool to draw mm-hmm. from. And, you know, that's a little scary because, you know, once you head down that path, it's it's tough to turn the ship around and say, you know, we're all going back to the office. It's impossible. So uh, yeah. I, I share your conclusion that, you know, the, the truth will be in the middle somewhere. But, you know, people are starting to make long term decisions based upon what this world looks like. And I think it's going to be difficult to uh sort of uh, go back to the way it was, but only time will tell. So Solo by Choice, it's this great resource. Is it in the second or third uh, edition? Because the the one I have is a second. Yeah. So there was a third edition, but I can finally report that I have just put the final closing on 
the the I call it the I'm calling it the posterity edition because I, I I'm not going to update it anymore. But each time I've done an update, it's hard to believe, but just so much has changed between each book. The first version came out in 2008, and when it came out, it was right before the big crash. And so the message was to just get people to think about solo practice as a possibility if you weren't happy, not if you couldn't really find a job. And then 2011 was more still during the recession and lawyer, you know, a glut of lawyers coming out of law school trying to figure out, you know, what their options were. And, you know, and now this version, of course, talks about, you know, there's a lot in there also about you know, just different changes in society and and the the pandemic and the aftermath. So, well, don't give up on it because it's a great resource, and uh, I think it I think it can evolve with the with the times. Yeah, no this this version I'm really happy with because I had there there were some things about the other ones that bothered me a little. There were things some things to change, but I mean this this version actually has a chapter on new business models because it's not just about the fees and the costs. Um, there's a chapter on sort of like personal issues, wellness and addressing. I, I think it's irresponsible to have a book on solo and small firm practice that doesn't at least allude to the high suicide rate among solo and small mm-hmm. firm lawyers. Um, and then there's, I'm trying to think there, there's, you know, of course the technology stuff is all uh, kind of, kind of changed and some things, you know, have gone by the, the wayside. So, yeah, so that should be out. I would say right at the beginning of 2020, like January, February, 2022. So. Oh, that's great. And yeah. and when that comes out, let us know and we'll, yeah. we'll update the links to the show. And hopefully you'll have a, a, a we have a Kindle version this time. That's the yes, only thing yeah. that was missing. Right. No, no. The Kindle version. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't release the book now, (laughs) but they're saying there's so many ways to, to get something Kindle, Kindle ready now. So there's a whole new market on that. So. Right. Kind of wrapping up here, a couple of things I really'd like to get your take on solos and small firms are too often embarrassed that they're small in size. And I don't really understand it. You know, when I went from a bigger firm to a smaller firm, my income at least tripled. Um, my clients, <laughs> my clients didn't deteriorate as to sort of quality or interest in the work I was doing. And I'm so happy and sort of proud of doing it my way, doing it our way, the way I did mm. it with my partners. And and I, I feel I feel better about the practice of law based on what we did. But I, I meet so many solos and smalls who, you know, they tell you, oh, I'm a small shop and it almost like they're embarrassed by yeah. it. And I, and I don't understand it. You've been preaching this for a couple of decades now. Why is that? And are we making any improvements on that front? Yeah, I go back and forth. I think now because of technology, there's an obsession with scaling. It's not just starting your firm, it's scaling your your, your growth and making money while you sleep. And, you know, and sometimes a big firm can be run that way where it just runs by itself and you're just sitting back and collecting the, the profits. But I think, you know, I mean, I'm not sure why people feel that way, except for, you know, like I said, they maybe believe that if you have more people working for you, it means that you're, you're earning more, but there's so much opportunity, especially being a small law firm to have a huge voice. I, I can't even describe, I have more coverage in the trade press in my industry than like the top 15 big law firms, just because you can stand out more, you have more autonomy, but, you know, ultimately you also kind of define your success by yourself and what you do and what you leave behind. And I think that as a small firm lawyer, you have more opportunities for influence because of the flexibility and because you touch the clients directly than you necessarily do if you are working for a big firm or even if you're, you're running a big a big firm, but yeah, you just necessarily, you know, it's, it's kind of all about you and how you define things in the end. And and I can't find it any longer, but you do have that great daily show uh, appearance from uh, some number of years ago. (laughs) I feel like we should be playing uh, a Sinatra in the background like I did it my way. So last question, and maybe we're premature and maybe I need to ask you this after you, you take Mm -hmm. your sabbatical. But what do you think the future of solos and small firms look like in you know five to ten years down the road? Is it is it that they have sort of 
moved into individualized business models and niches? Is it that it's something we can't even imagine today? Is it that you know, they sort of get gobbled up by bigger firms? Where do you think the crystal ball goes? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's also something I am addressing in the solo by choice. I think that a lot of these solo and small firms that are very becoming very outdated or maybe run by older lawyers, I think those will sort of run their course. I don't think you'll necessarily see that those types of practices just because courts will be much more automated. I think we will see maybe, you know, some of these new I guess you would call them like what franchise models or Mm -hmm. like the legal zoom branded attorneys or things like that. Kind of like these minute, these clinics you see with, Mm -hmm. with doctors all over the place. But I think we'll also see a lot of, uh, or at least hopefully see also lawyers working more collaboratively with other professionals. And I think we'll see maybe more, you know, more, more remote firms, more clients, you know, being able to communicate with lawyers online, maybe using more technology to enable their, their forms. And then I I think there will be maybe a move also towards more online dispute resolution as people become Mm -hmm. more comfortable with that for certain types of cases. So, I mean, it's, it's nice to think of it, of, of things changing, but it's, you know, the, the, often the structure always remains the same. Well, after you've taken your sabbatical and figured out what the future looks like, we're going to check back in with you and see, okay. uh, see the, the wisdom that you've come up with. Carolyn, on behalf of sort of a whole industry, I'd like to say thank you because you're a testament to a couple of things. You're a testament to good lawyers, sort of always like find their own way and always have work and always provide leadership. And then the honesty that that you sort of had in sharing your own experiences and being a cheerleader for the things you think are important. I do think you've moved the profession meaningfully forward and thank you on behalf of a lot of people for that. And so, uh, so, so keep it up with whatever comes after, uh, after your sabbatical coming up here. Well, thank you. That made my day. (laughs) All right. We'll talk soon, Carolyn. Okay.